we come back once more to a consideration of the great prayer that the Apostle Paul was offering for the members of the church at Ephesus, which is to be found in his epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter. And again I would read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. We are considering this great prayer, this great petition that the Apostle offers for these people, and we've arrived at the petition that is found in the 17th verse, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by or through faith, that ye being rooted, that ye having been rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints the greatness of the love of Christ. Now we are here, as I keep on saying Sunday by Sunday, in the very holiest of all, as it were, of the Christian life and the Christian message. And for that very reason, we need to pray for ourselves as the Apostle prayed for these Ephesians, that they might be strengthened with all might by his Spirit in the inner men. It would be foolish, it would be idle to pretend or to assume that this great prayer is something which is easy to understand or easy to expound. Of necessity, it isn't and it cannot be. And it's not meant to be. The Christian faith, the Christian message, the Christian gospel is wonderful and marvelous. It can be compared to a great ocean. A little child can paddle at the edge of the ocean, but away out in the center, in the depths, the mightiest Atlantic liner is but like a cork or a bubble. There is no end to it, as it were. But it's the same thing. It's the same ocean. And thus, you see, we come into the Christian life and we enter it as children. We just begin to paddle. But we must go on and out into the depths. And that is what we are led to do as we consider this great prayer together. And that is why I come back again to this 17th verse. You can't just make a few comments upon 
these mighty phrases and then pass on, feeling that you've dealt with it and you can go on to something else. These phrases are all of them so full of matter. They come to us with such a wealth and they search us in such a manner that uh, it is our business and our duty to, to pause and to ponder them deeply and to spend much time with them. Because uh, when you're dealing with great and profound truth, it is always something that is liable to misunderstanding also. But the thing above everything else that I'm anxious to impress upon you this morning is this. Handling a matter like this, we are incapable of a precision which we can manifest when we are dealing with the beginnings of the Christian faith. There should be no difficulty about uh, stating the doctrine of justification by faith clearly. And the men who cannot do that should never stand in a pulpit. With the beginnings of the Christian life, there is exactitude, precision, perfectly clear. But when you come on to a realm like this, well, I say we mustn't expect to be so precise. You can't put things into categories in exactly the same way as you did at the beginning. The very nature and the character of the truth makes that quite impossible. So if you find yourselves up to a point, as I've no doubt many do and many did last Sunday morning and on previous occasions when we've looked at this, without having that exact ability to understand, don't be surprised. There is a sense in which there is something almost good in that. You can't dissect an aroma. You can't uh, analyze love in a sense. And that's the very thing with which we are dealing here. We can but go forward and go as far as we can in our attempt to bring out the truth in its richness and to elucidate as far as that is possible. But we do it, I say, with fear and trembling. I'm ready to confess very freely that I uh, do not recall in 30 years uh, having dealt with anything in the scripture where I have been so conscious of my own inadequacy and inability as with this particular passage. I don't stand here to make authoritative statements, but I am here by the grace of God and it's a tremendous privilege just to hold these things before you and to beseech you in a spirit of humility to look at them and to ponder them and to pray about them. Not in an argumentative spirit, I say, not with a desire to have everything exactly labeled. You can't do that here. But with a desire to enter in to this place where coming face to face with God and the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, Perhaps one shall find oneself just speechless before, because of the glory with which we are confronted. Well, now then, I say that there are two big things which we must bear in mind once more. The first is that this petition is offered for those who are already believers. This is not a petition for unbelievers. It is a petition offered for those who are already members of the church in the Christian faith. Now, that is something we've got to, um, to, to emphasize for this reason. That this passage alone shows this very clearly. That any Christian who is satisfied with his or her position or experience is in a very sad and deplorable condition. 
It's something that can happen to us very easily, and especially at a time like this, with so much error and so much heresy, so much apostasy, with so much false understanding of the elements of the Christian faith. It's a very simple thing for those who are evangelical to imagine that they've arrived. And because they're always contrasting themselves with those who are obviously wrong, to think that they need nothing more. My dear friend, what you need to do is not to look at people who are wrong, but to look at the saints. Look at a passage like this and measure yourself by this. This is the thing the apostle wants believers to go on to. Very well then, I say, we must realize that we have not received all and our business is not merely to maintain the position at which we've arrived. We must press on unto perfection. We must forget the things that are behind and press onwards toward the mark the high calling, the prize that is in Christ Jesus. But, having emphasized that side, let me emphasize this other side. And this is one of the most marvelous things of all. The apostle offers this prayer for all Christians. It isn't merely a prayer for certain exceptional people. The New Testament, unlike the Roman Catholic Church or other forms of Catholicism, does not divide believers into religious and laity. It's an utterly false distinction then. There are no specialists in the Christian life. This prayer is offered for all. The apostle was there himself. Yes, but he wants all these Ephesians to get there. And when you read something about these people, it becomes still more wonderful. They'd come out of paganism. And it's uh, very easy to discover from this epistle alone the kind of people they once were, the kind of life they used to live, he has to remind them that they mustn't go on stealing, they mustn't go on committing adultery, they mustn't go on talking foolishly and having their unworthy jests and jokes, they mustn't go on being liars. Well, that's the type of life they had been living. We know the state of the world at that time, we know something about paganism at all times, the darkness, the darkness and the sin and the squalor, well, they'd come out of all that. And here, you see, though they'd only just come out of that, the great apostle holds before them this tremendous possibility. And it is because it is possible for them that he thus prays for them. And we must remind ourselves this morning, therefore, that it is very wrong and very sinful to say, oh, that's not for me. That's for some exceptional people. No, it is for you. It is for all Christians. It is for all believers. And we must never be satisfied for a moment until we are in this position and know, know it experimentally and are able to rejoice in it. I imagine that there will be nothing more terrible at the day of judgment when we shall see our Lord face to face than to realize what was possible for us in this life. And yet to know that we never bothered ourselves about it. We skimmed over these great phrases without ever delving into them and trying to discover what they meant and whether we might have that. I can imagine nothing more terrible than that possibility. Very well then, let me come back and try once more to give a little further definition as to what this means, this Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. What does it mean? 
Let us try to expound it or explain it a little further. Now, let me take up this point. What is the relationship of this to the sealing of the Spirit? Some people seem to think that this is identical with the sealing of the Spirit. But obviously, that cannot be the case. The Apostle has already reminded these Ephesians in the 13th verse of the first chapter that they've already been sealed with the Spirit, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that he believed, or having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. He is offering this petition that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith for people who had already been sealed with or by the Spirit. Therefore, these two things are patently not identical. And it's very difficult to understand how anyone could ever have imagined for a moment that they could mean the same thing. And yet I think I can understand where the confusion comes in. As I was saying just now, in this realm, it is very difficult to catalogue things and to put your labels upon them as distinct and separate things for this reason. That every experience, and especially every high experience in the Christian life, is of necessity related to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord Jesus Christ. As I had to say last Sunday morning, you can't be a Christian at all unless Christ is in you. Well, then you say, if Christ is in you, what does he mean by praying? That Christ may dwell in their hearts. Well, we answered the question. It is a kind of settling, a settling down, if you like, in the life in a deeper and in a more settled manner than hitherto. But you see, there seems to be a confusion even there. That's because of the inadequacy of language. That is because of the glorious nature of the truth. And it's the same with the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And yet that's a very different thing from being baptized by the Spirit or being sealed by the Spirit, as we have seen. So that here, you see, as we come back again, we are using the same terms in a sense. We are still talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking about the Holy Spirit. And yet, there is a difference. They have been sealed, and yet he prays that this may be their portion. What then is the difference between this and the sealing of the Spirit? Well, I would say it's mainly this. That the sealing with the Holy Spirit is primarily a matter of assurance of salvation. The sealing of the Spirit is that which gives us that direct and immediate assurance that we are the children of God and the heirs of God and that the inheritance is going to be ours. Now, this which we are dealing with here is not primarily a matter of assurance. It is mainly a question of communion with the Lord. The sealing assures me that I am related to him, that I belong to him. This is now which, that which brings me the fellowship and the communion with him in a deeper and in a greater sense. I would say that that is the essential difference between the sealing with the Spirit and this. Obviously, they are both great experiences. And as we saw, when you are sealed with the Spirit, you have a consciousness of Christ, of course. You're aware of the power of the Spirit, of necessity. 
But here, I say, is something which goes beyond that and is deeper. Let me put it then secondly like this. This experience is more permanent than that of sealing. Sealing is something which can be often repeated. It is repeated in the lives of the saints. You see repetitions of it in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Here is something which is more permanent. Uh, this very word dwell emphasizes that uh, settling down, taking up your abode in. So there is another element. Don't press it too far, but it is a real distinction. There is a greater element of permanence here. And furthermore, I would add this, that I would say that in this experience, there is less of what you may call the ecstatic element than in the ceiling. In connection with the ceiling, what one is conscious of is this glory, this immediacy, this luminosity. Whereas here, it is something on a deeper level, more permanent, and therefore less ecstatic. If I may put it in a little illustration. I remember hearing what a, an old preacher said during a revival in Wales in 1904 and five. In this revival, large numbers of people were suddenly experiencing the baptism of the Spirit and often accompanied by great ecstasy and great joy and much praising. And some of these younger people were rather surprised that this old minister who had been in a similar revival in 1859 when he was a young man, they expressed surprise that the old minister didn't seem to be having the ecstatic joy that they were having. They couldn't understand this. They felt there was something wrong with him, and they went and talked to him about it. And what he said to them was something like this, and I would apply it to these matters. He said, you know, it's the difference between falling in love for the first time and living with your wife in a state of love throughout the years. That first ecstatic excitement doesn't continue, but it doesn't mean there's less love. There's less excitement about it. There's less fuss and bother, if I may so put it. But it doesn't mean that there is any diminution in the love. It may well mean the exact opposite. That it's a deeper love. Well, now it's something the same here. With this difference, it seems to me, between the sealing with the Spirit and this Christ dwelling in the heart. This is a greater love. It's a greater knowledge. It's a greater intimacy. It's a greater fellowship. Yes, but it hasn't just that thrill, if you like, that the first experience of the power of the Spirit invariably brings. Well, let's leave it like that. Let me go on and deal with a second matter. I come back again to attempt to describe still more the nature and the character of this experience, this knowledge of Christ dwelling in the heart by faith. Let me put it like this. It's the difference between knowing Christ for you and knowing Christ in you. Now, in the beginning of the Christian faith, we of necessity have to concentrate on Christ for us. 
The beginning of the Christian life should always be mainly objective. In other words, what makes us Christian is that we realize certain things about the Lord Jesus Christ, his work for us, and his relationship to us. Now, that's objective. We look at Christ outside us. We look at him coming and being born as a baby in Bethlehem. We watch him growing up. We listen to his teaching. We observe his miracles. We see him dying on the cross. And we look at that and we say, now what's happening there? Why did he go there? What's he doing there? And we say, he's there bearing my sins. He is dying for my sins. Christ for me. I'm standing outside and I'm looking at him. And what he has done for me and on my behalf. Objecting. Now then. This is not objective. This is something that results from the objective. This is subjective. Ah, but someone says, but surely there's a subjective element in the other. Of course there is. As I'm saying, you mustn't draw these distinctions too sharply. If there isn't a subjective element there, you're not a Christian at all. It may be pure theory in your mind. Yes, but speaking broadly, that is mainly objective. This is mainly subjective. The objective element still remains here, but it isn't a big thing. We've now gone on to this other position in which we are mainly concerned about Christ, not as the one who died for me, but Christ as my life. Christ is the one who resides within me and who takes up his abode within my life and within my consciousness. Now let me give you one statement of this which was spoken by the Lord himself which I think will help us to understand this. You'll find it in the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. He puts it like this. Verse 53 and following. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Now listen to this. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. Now, that's a very profound saying and one which is difficult to understand. We read later on, many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? And indeed the passage goes on to say that many of them went back and walked no more with him. They said, No, we can't follow this sort of thing. This has gone beyond our depths. We can't be bothered with this. And they left him. Many who had been following him. You see, we're in a realm where it's very difficult to understand these things. So let me use a phrase like this. What is this? Well, I say it is Christ dwelling within. Not as an influence. Not as a memory. Not merely through his teaching. Not merely through the Holy Spirit. It is Christ himself dwelling within us. Let me use the term. It is a mystical relationship. I've got to use the term. Because nothing else and nothing less does justice to the teaching of the New Testament concerning this matter. Take that passage I've just read to you. Take again 
those statements in the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, which we read last Sunday, where Christ said that he will manifest himself to them, where he says that he will come and take up his abode within them, that he and the Father will take up their abode. And you get the same thing in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. You get it in the writings of this apostle, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not Christ among you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. All these statements. Now, they are uh, terms which describe this mystical relationship. I put it like that for this reason. Somebody may come to me and say, well, now, how do you mean that Christ dwells in me? I can't understand it. My dear friend, of course you can't. I don't understand it. Nobody can understand it. It's scripture. It's a mystical something that is beyond understanding. Our bodies, we are told, are the temples of the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. The Holy Ghost is in heaven, yes, but he's in me. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in him, but he is also in me. It's a mystical relationship. And we mustn't minimize it. We mustn't scale it down. We must give it its full weight. Now, I say that we are bound to do that because otherwise we don't do justice to the scriptures. But you know, we not only do not do justice to the scriptures... We don't do justice to the great experiences that the saints of God have had throughout the centuries. Take that hymn which we've just been singing. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Is he that to you? Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Is that true of you? You see, you can believe on his work for you. You can be a Christian. You can be saved by him without being able to say quite honestly that he is the joy of your heart. Now, when these people wrote these hymns, they meant what they said. They were being honest. They were relating their experiences. It isn't mere poetry. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men. From the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. Is it true of us? Let me give you some more. Take another one. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills the breast. Is it true? Can you really say that? Now, my argument is that these men are writing their experience here. It isn't theory. They'd read these scriptures. They'd realized their application to them. They'd sought this and they'd obtained. And this is how they write as the result of it. But listen to this great hymn. I'm reading hymn number 173 in this hymnary. Let me read you verse 4. For verse 3 first, O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek. To those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. But listen, but what to those who find? Ah, this. Nor tongue nor pen can show. I want to confess to you that that line was a great comfort to me during this past week. As I struggled with all this, 
How can I say it? How can I express it? How can I make it clear? I like to be logical. I like to be plain. I like to be consecutive. But how can I do that with this? Here's the answer. But what to those who find? Ah, this. Nor tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know, but they do know. They can't tell you much about it in an exact manner. They can't be scientific about it, but they know it. They're rejoicing in it. None but his loved ones know, but they do know. And then let me go on. Oh, Jesus, King most wonderful, thou conqueror renowned, Thou sweetness most ineffable, in whom all joys are found. You know, there's a great deal to be said for the people who hold the view that we shouldn't sing hymns in public. We can often be very dishonest, can't we, as we sing hymns. We've often sung this hymn. But is it true of us? We claim to be singing experience. Thou sweetness most ineffable, in whom all joys are found. Is that true of you? Have you found that? These men had found it. That's why they sing thus. They are not dishonest. They are relating their experience. Then he goes on, When once thou visitest the heart, then truth begins to shine. That's a different thing from an intellectual apprehension of it. Have you known this luminosity, this shining of the truth? That's the thing that happens when Christ dwells and settles in the heart. And then he says, earthly vanities depart, then kindles love divine. Oh, let us, I say, go back and read these things and ponder them. Listen to another, listen to Charles Wesley saying it. There I've been quoting a writer from the 12th century to you. Come along to the 18th century. And Charles Wesley doesn't hesitate to say, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in thee I find. Is it true of us? Can we say it? That's the language of people in whom Christ has taken up his abode, in whom Christ dwells. I should have mentioned in the 17th century the saintly Samuel Rutherford. Read his letters. Read the accounts of his life. Read this element of Christ mysticism that was so prominent in his experience. A rigid Calvinist, you know. But there he was. He knew him. He loved him. And how he loves to speak about him and to dwell upon him and his love. And so I say you find it running throughout the centuries in men belonging to the different theological schools. You turn to a man like Count Zinzendorf the Moravian in the 18th century and this is what he says. I have one passion. It is he and he alone. Now, that's not the sort of language that what we may call the average ordinary Christian can imply. You can be a Christian, you know, and not yet be able to say that. 
That's why the apostle was praying for these Ephesians. They'd believed, yes, they'd been sealed by the Spirit, but they couldn't use this sort of language. They didn't know him in this way. He hadn't settled down in their hearts. It means this, you see, that Christ dominates the life. It means that he rules over the whole of our activities. He is the Lord of our life. In a real practical sense, we are dominated by him. A kind of Christ intoxication. We love him so much that he is ever central. Well, I've read these things to you because it seems to me that that is the best way to convey this precious truth. Ordinary men and women throughout the centuries as well as exceptional people have been able to sing like this. Go through your hymn books. Look at the sections on the Lord Jesus Christ and on those that express joy and peace and love to God and to Christ. Look at the sections even on consecration and holiness and you'll find that all these people throughout the running centuries have all had their eye on this one thing. That's what made them right. That's what led to the magnificent poetry and this elevated, exalted thought. Now then, let me end on a practical note. How does all this become possible to us? What have we got to do in order to arrive in that position where we really can appropriate this language honestly and make it the language of our own hearts and the expression of our own experience? Well, again, you see, it means I've got to repeat verses 16 and 17. They come in the right order. He prays first that God would grant them according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. And without that it's all hopeless. This is the result of a mighty work of the Holy Spirit within us. Primarily. The Holy Spirit must work upon our minds and upon our hearts and upon our wills. Don't you feel that your mind needs to be strengthened as you confront a truth like this? How much easier it is to understand uh, history or literature or geography or geometry or law or medicine or anything else than this. Haven't you felt this morning as we've been looking into these great abysses, as it were, of truth, haven't you felt the need that your mind needs to be strengthened and it must be strengthened? Otherwise this seems impossible. We all tend to feel by nature like those people who were listening to the Lord when he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can follow this sort of preaching? And away they went. You want, we need our minds to be strengthened in order that we don't collapse, as it were, when we are confronted by something so marvelous because our minds can't comprehend them. We can't just sort of take hold of them and say, I've got this. It always seems to be eluding you and going beyond you. Well, the mind needs to be prepared. Thank God the Holy Spirit can do it. You remember how the apostle puts it in writing to the Corinthians. He says, the princes of this world didn't grasp this truth, but God hath revealed them unto us by the Spirit, the Spirit that searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Don't despair, my beloved friend. If you find all this rather hard and difficult, remember the power of the Holy Spirit and pray that he may strengthen your mind. 
and our hearts need to be strengthened. Because, you know, while we love ourselves, Christ won't come into our hearts. And we've got to be rid of the love of self. And that's the most difficult thing in the world, the most difficult thing of all, in all experience. The real battle in the Christian life is to get rid of self and of self-love. And you know, you and I alone can't do it. You drive him out to the front door, he'll come in through the back door. He'll come in through the windows. He'll come in down the chimney. He'll come somewhere. Oh, the difficulty of getting rid of self-love. But Christ won't come there until there's room for him. You've got to get rid of self. And you can't create love. You can't work it up. Nothing is so foolish as to try to work up love. It can't be done. Love is the gift of God through the Spirit. So we must pray that he'll strengthen the heart for this pure love, which is so strange to us as natural men and women. And then, you know, the will needs to be strengthened. Isn't this your experience? You listen to a passage like this and you say, I'd cut off my right hand if I could only have that. Now I'm going in for that, I must have it. But, you know, by tomorrow night you may well have forgotten all about it. Indeed, you may have forgotten all about it before you finish your lunch today. You'll start talking about something else and it'll have gone. You were fully resolved in the service. You were going to do it. But then you take up this or that and enter into an argument and talk about trivialities. And you've forgotten all about it. And you come back next Sunday and you say, Ah, I thought by now I'd have known this. But you haven't applied yourself. Your will is too weak. All our wills are weak. We're always proposing. We're always resolving. But we don't keep up at it. We don't go on. And the will needs this strength. Very well. We therefore must pray that the Holy Spirit will thus strengthen us. You see, the apostle was praying that constantly for the Ephesians. It is my business, as one was called to minister this word in this place, to pray for all of you. I try to do so. God forgive me for my failure. But my dear friend, you must pray for yourself. If you realize that this is a possibility, I say go on praying this until you know it. Pray that you may be strengthened with this power, this might of the Spirit in your inner man. And then you see, as that happens to you, this is what will follow. You will begin to see your sin and your sinfulness in a way that you've never seen it before. You thought you knew about sin, you'll discover that you didn't. You'll discover a vileness in yourself you couldn't even have imagined. It's no longer a question of doing this or that. There is a, an evil in your very nature. And you'll begin to mortify the flesh. You'll begin to act. You'll cleanse your heart. You'll cleanse your hands. You'll purify your flesh and your spirit as this apostle exhorts the Corinthians to do. Why? Well, you'll realize that it's something like this. Whenever you invite a guest to come and stay in your home, you always begin to tidy up, don't you? You want the place to look nice. You're quite right. It would be insulting to your guests not to do so. You want everything to be as perfect as possible. You're paying your guests a very subtle and delicate compliment. If you have some great personage coming to stay with you, you redouble your efforts. There's nothing you won't do. You'll clean. You'll repaper. You'll paint. 
You'll make the place as near as you can to a palace. Why, well, a great personage is coming to stay with you. And you see what you and I have been considering together? Is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coming to dwell with you? Not just to pay a visit, but to make his home with you. It needs preparation, doesn't it? Yes, you see, the apostle knew it needed it. That's why he was praying for them. And as we thus become strengthened, we act. We'll get rid of the rubbish. We'll cleanse and purify ourselves, mortify the flesh, deliberately keep out things that we know are not compatible with him or would hurt him or grieve him or offend him. We'll do all that we can. And we'll go on doing it. We'll plead with him to come. We'll yearn for him. See, that's where the faith comes in. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Believing in the possibility. Knowing that it can become an actuality. You see, faith here doesn't mean take it by faith. Which means that you persuade yourself that he's come. No, no, my dear friend, when Christ dwells in your heart, you won't need to persuade yourself. You'll know it. You'll be able to say, Thou sweetness most ineffable, in whom all joys are found. This pernicious doctrine of taking it by faith, I believe, has hindered many people at this point. They say, Ah, yes, I've opened the door, I've let him in. I believe my faith is there. They don't feel any different. They can't use this language. Why? Well, because he is not dwelling there. When he dwells within, well, we know it. There's nothing else that matters. It's the supreme thing. It is the most glorious thing of all. Very well then, I say. Let us realize the glorious, wondrous possibility. If he's ever visited us, let's go back to him and say, Come and stay. Leave me not. Come and take up thine abode and thy dwelling with me. <coughs> Strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. Praying in faith, keeping on and on and on until we can honestly appropriate the language and say with the great apostle, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me.